I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. For official purposes, everyone has a number. Yours is number six. I am not a number. I am a person. Six of one, half a dozen of another. Glenn, we've done a few of these now, but I just have a feeling that perhaps tonight is special. Oh, why is that, Chris? Uh, because I thought you'd have plenty to say about Peter Bowles' performance as as A when he <laughs> suggests to number six that perhaps tonight is special. Yeah, 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 yeah. That line reading was like the skeleton key for me to Matt Berry's entire career on uh, <laughs> Toast of London and um, What We Do in Shadows. Sure, sure, yeah. I mean, uh, Peter Bowles, uh, some listeners might know from a British sitcom that he did for a couple of years called uh, To the Manor Born, where he starred against the great Felicity Kenville. Um, mm. uh, but here he is, uh, I think it's fair to say, camping it up a bit. Yeah. Glenn, in 1966, Patrick McGowan, star of the long-running TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where each resident is referred to only by a number. Surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time, and innately, unambiguously, lava-lampedly of its time, mm-hmm. that short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Yes, it was. I was thinking, in light of our, our discussion of the Chimes of Big Ben last week, Glenn, mm-hmm. and, and the way that that episode's pivotal art show required all of the, the participants, save for number six, to be good enough at drawing, sculpting, painting, etc., to do a credible likeness of Leo McKern so that we could recognize that uh, his reach over this village extends to that kind of totalitarian degree, mm-hmm. right, that everyone is, is uh, trying to please him with their, their submissions. This is kind of a personal question, but we, we, we've known each other for a long time. Have you seen the film Independence Day Resurgence? I have not. No, missed it. Uh, that is uh, Roland Emmerich's sequel to Independence Day, which I know definitely exists because I reviewed it for The Village Voice, a publication that, like that movie, also definitely exists and shall continue to exist in, in perpetuity, I have no doubt or reason to worry. Anyway, Will Smith declined to return for that sequel, and really all I remember about it is uh, there's a scene in the in the White House where we're shown what is supposed to be like a heroic portrait of Will Smith's character from the first movie, and it is such a poor likeness that I, I thought maybe they didn't have the rights to actually use Will Smith's image. They might <laughs> so not. I, Likenesses, yeah, that's the whole thing. Yeah, so... Uh, is he I dead just, in that film? Yes, like he died uh, testing the, the new breed of fighters that uh, Earth has um, reverse engineered from captured alien technology, I think. Okay. Well, he, Saw it once four and a half years ago. Yeah, he died defending Earth with an F. That's good for him. That's, that's, that's right. <laughs> Welcome, friends, to the podcast where we take The Prisoner, we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series, and we push it like Mm. Sisyphus. Mm. We file it like a TPS report. Got that. We stamp it like a passport. Uh We index it like a consumer price. Good. We brief it like a man who doesn't like the way boxers bunch up inside your pants and spoil your sculpted masculine lines. Mm -hmm. We debrief it like we've just been extracted from a cult. Sure. We number it like a limited edition foil-stamped variant first issue cover. No, we're not going to do that because fuck those things. They ruined comics. They did. We're going to talk McGoohans. We're going to talk McGuffins. Our inquiry into this still perplexing document is not of a degree qualified. It is not of a degree somewhat. It is not of a degree provisional. Glenn, Glenn, Glenn. 
It's of a degree absolute, Chris. It's a yeah. It's a, I mean, come on, right there. Three Pete, you nailed the hat trick. A feat so nice, you performed it thrice. Uh huh. Sports, sports, sports. I sports, know sports, sports. It. Boy, that is a low bar that I just cleared. Like, thank <laughs> God, good for me. <laughs> I think this episode, uh, a, a warning to you and to listeners, this is going to be so discursive it it might actually be cursive. Um, but just so much has happened since last we spoke. I, I need to tell you, I was I was watching Casino Royale during the previous week. This would okay. be the the Ot six version that introduced sure. the Daniel Craig iteration of uh, James Bond, and on that disc, superb commentary track. Uh, screenwriters Neil Purvis and Robert Wade during the scene when we meet Mads Mikkelsen's Le Chief, the the mm-hmm. uh, terrorist financier and high stakes gambler, and we see that his eye is bleeding. He seeks to reassure the card player across the table from him that uh, it's nothing to worry about. It's just, he says, a derangement of the tear ducts. <laughs> on, the, <laughs> on the commentary track, <laughs> either Purvis or Wade says they, they gave him that line because they like the way that one Patrick McGowan said the word derangement in the film Scanners, which huh. I didn't know he was in. Yeah. But uh, also I thought it was, they, they did describe Scanners, which I think even as someone who has not seen it, I would describe as a David Cronenberg film, pretty mm. pretty famous director, and they referred to it as a as a Pat McGowan film. Wow, boy, yeah, I mean it's uh, like it, it's one of the more memeable Cronenberg films because uh, that that head explosion thing is sure. just is, yeah. You, yeah. it comes up on the on the social media feeds quite a lot. Yeah, I, I don't know how I haven't seen it. You know, Michael Ironside is also in it from sure Top is. Gun and Total Recall. Uh, we we may have to do. Uh, like a Patreon-only yep. episode. I don't remember him saying derangement in that, but in this episode he gets, you know, there's this mode that we've talked about before, this mode of speech that he enters into when he is entering a kind of performative space, uh, the character is, uh-huh. and uh, here he says, this is a dreamy party, like that. I just live for those moments. Yeah, I meant to look up when, um, oh, uh, Blow Up, the, the mm-hmm. Antonioni movie came out. It's around this time, right? It's like circa 67. Sure. Or, because that's that along with Bond. That's the other part of Austin Powers, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but the yeah, the party scene in this episode. When we get to see, when mm-hmm. we get to the the final third, very very proto Austin Powers. Which rough, why I wanted to see whether it, it came before or after blow up. Right, and the uh, I would I would say there's an even more direct antecedent or pres- pres- precedent, uh, which is Batman, 1966 Batman, because uh. that party starts off. At a Dutch tilt, at a Dutch oh, angle, yes. like it is a Batman villain lair. And I think yep. that is probably, I would imagine it's not a coincidence, but who, who the hell knows? Mm. How the hell do I know? It was a year later, wasn't it? It was, and by that time, uh, the Batman television series was already kind of running out of steam, but uh, its influence was international. To steal information from the prisoner, they manipulate his mind. So this is your wonder drug? Yes. His mind is now yours. What do you want from it? So the episode we're talking about is A, B, and C. It was originally titled 1, 2, and 3, but they changed it. Don't know why. Uh, They couldn't get the rights to the Oxford comma. (laughs) That's right. right. Because it appears on screen A, period, B, period. It's a period piece, Glenn. It's a period piece. Nicely done, Chris. Uh, So we meet our episodes number two in the original, you know, the Q&A that tops off every show. Now, if you look up Colin Gordon, who plays number two in this episode, he's played, he's got a huge IMDb page. He's played a lot of vicars, played a lot of uh, uh, constables, lots of men named Cecil. Uh, that, that's, his, that's his 
vibe, and he really brings it here. I would say that when we first hear him, his first, you know, opening salvo, where am I? In the village. It's kind of peppy. But he consistently goes more and more sinister, especially when you get to information. Information. Info- he, he chews the hell out of that. But can we talk about his laughter? Chris, do you remember this? The rejoinder I, to I am a free man is number two laughs. But Yeah, there's there's a real sinister cackle. This laughter is the fakey fakiest. I hope we have a clip of it. I am not a number. I am a free man. <laughs> the most over-the-top, snidely whiplash, even though McGowan is going really high with, I'm a free man, that laughter is over over him it's it's yeah. it's not it doesn't seem like it was triggered by McGowan in any way shape or form it's just huge uh, uh, a mirthless cackle it's, if you will. it's well there's there's I would argue there's too much mirth <laughs> it's all mirth <laughs> this episode both begins and ends with number two which mm-hmm. is kind of a shift in in focus we have not been uh, outside of number number six's head for most of most of the episodes that have come in, come before we have seen glimpses of life behind the scenes in the village as number six leaves the scene we might hang with number two for a second or two but we do not get a lot of uh the machinations of the village until this episode this Mm -hmm. changes things uh now there's a big risk with that because one of the reasons you want to stick with number six is you want to feel his sense of persecution his sense of isolation um but i think it pays off here because something that has been implicit throughout the series of, of these first two episodes becomes explicit here which is that number two uh is afraid of number one he's afraid of losing his job he's possibly afraid of losing his life he's so afraid of number one that he's nursing an ulcer this is why he keeps drinking milk uh throughout the episode unlike most other number twos this number two is willing to risk six's life if it means holding on to his position and we're going to see the colin gordon milk drinking number two again in an episode Mm -hmm. called the general which was filmed before this one. So once you see the general, uh, a lot of the moments between them don't make a lot of sense because like they're meeting each other for the first time in that episode. So it's, yeah. it's a little odd. Maybe he's not under as much strain in that episode. Presumably he's he's in a he's in a tough spot here because it's been a while since I've seen it, but I think he he fails in the general to to break number six in that episode. <laughs> yes, I think he does. This is an episode where number six wins. This is the first episode where number six out and out wins but we're getting ahead of ourselves so chris uh, explain this to me number two has a yellow phone a red phone and a green phone uh but he also has a big honking curved red phone which is for calls from number one so what are the other phones for then well the yellow phone is for calling number 14 i mean this episode establishes that Clearly, um, and I, I think he asked the operator to connect her, so it's not like a direct line, like sure. the the large red phone, the huge curved red phone, which I I don't think it's just the camera perspective. I, I think it it's actually huge. is the nature of the physical object that the the more afraid number two becomes, the larger and more swollen and and more curved the red <laughs> phone gets. <laughs> yes, it's like Desmond Llewellyn's hands in the in the Bond films. It's it's getting larger each time you you see it. Okay, I don't get that reference, but I'm sure people out there do, and they're going nuts. They're like, ah, finally, I feel seen. All right, so the plot of this episode is that number six is to be drugged using a formula developed by number 14, 
who is uh, played by Sheila Allen, uh, an actress who had a really long career. She was at the Royal Shakespeare Company for a long time, played a lot of Shakespeare in her day. She's not really given all that much to do, although she can, she communicates yeah. layers here, I think, effectively. Uh, so the character of 14 has developed this drug formula, but she hasn't tested it yet, not even on animals, Yeah, um, which i got to think that that's... And, and we get that bit of information because we hear it over the phone when mm-hmm. where the camera's still on number two, well, he's speaking to number 14 we haven't seen yet, but we hear her side of that phone conversation, which we don't hear when he's talking presumably to number one. Yeah, that's interesting. Different phone. Yeah, I guess. Oh, I guess. Right. I guess it's a... the number fourteen phone somehow smaller, but also much louder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Counterintuitive. Now imagine. I I think that number fourteen is probably relieved not to have to test on animals because imagine watching animals' dreams for a week. <laughs> you know, like, have have just... we seen any animals in the village? It's, we haven't actually. You know what? We haven't. No. I mean, I would imagine there are lab rats. I would imagine there are bunnies. Which is just, what are you going to watch them dream about? Foraging? I mean, that would be really, really boring. Yeah. I did read that uh, screenwriter Anthony Skine kind of repurposed this this script for another TV show he worked on later. And the heavy amount of of table setting that we get in this, this first scene with number 14 really shows you how that would be possible. First, we, we have the technology that allows us to view someone's dreams energy from his brain thoughts like sound waves converted into electrical impulses and finally into pictures extraordinary so that's that's one piece of wild tech that we <laughs> yep. haven't heard about before Patently and then the other yep. piece is the drug apparently developed here in the village by number 14 that makes the the subject more susceptible to suggestions so by playing some film (laughs) somehow directly into the subject's brain because they're not looking at it while they're lying on the table with their eyes closed. You can then uh, extract things from their their subconscious somehow. I keep returning to (laughs) Christopher Nolan's obsession with this series. Here's the movie Inception right here, Glenn. Yeah, it's true. Also a movie called Dreamscape back in the day. Same kind of deal. Um, when we see what number six is dreaming about, it's him resigning on an endless loop over and over again from the opening credits. Uh, so it's not an important thing here. This is not his point of view. He is dreaming that there's a camera watching him resign and break a teacup over and over and over he again. He hates tea sets. He really hates tea sets. He likes pounding on tables. He likes delivering envelopes by hand and uh, destroying China. And he'll destroy some China uh, later on in this episode. Uh, So, you know, the technology is marveled at by the camera and by the script, and it just looks like an oscilloscope and just some really Radio Shack-looking equipment here. But if this was made today, it would be they're making him enter a simulation where he is to meet three different people because number two is coming into this with a hypothesis, which is that number six was going to sell out. Now, I have a degree in science, Chris. I don't know if you knew that. I have a bachelor's in science. Oceanography, if it's I'm a not marine, mistaken. marine biology. It's a, it's, Sorry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's One thing you do not do is make the facts fit your hypothesis. You, you go into it with a hypothesis that is disprovable. His hypothesis, and this is his fatal flaw in this episode, is that he is convinced that number six was going to sell out uh, which is not a term, by the way, if you, if you were watching this in 1967 and you, you, were th- you were thinking that this show was going to lead to an answer, capital A, 
instead of just you know meandering speeches about the nature of youth, capital Y, which is actually where the show ends up. But um, if you thought that, you'd think, oh, I have a clue now, because number two says he was going to sell out, which is not something that somebody on the other side would say. They would say he crossed over. So sellout means, in my thinking, you can disprove wow. it if, if you wish, but I think the fact that he was going to sell out means that it is the West that runs the village. I think that's a clue yeah. here. I, I, would, I, would, I would factor it in. I, I will confess that had not occurred to me, and uh, you're, you're the brains of this outfit, Glenn. Everybody mm, knows mm, that. But I, I, I was kind of trying to project myself back into the mindset of an audience member in 1967 with a much more practical consideration. Um, I'm thinking clip show. This is the third. <laughs> it does not turn out to be a clip show, but this is the third episode. Not, not the third made, but the third broadcast. And... Uh, Already, it seems like they're setting it up like we're going to show you a bunch of clips from previous episodes. But it, it does not turn out to be the uh, budget-stretching clip job that this setup clearly seems to portend. We mustn't disappoint them, the people who are watching. So back to number six. He gets drugged by some uh, tea that his maid leaves. Like, good lord, even in, even in the village, this dude is hella privileged. Um, and he's there in the operating theater, I would guess you call the laboratory. Strapped down, wacky things wired to his head. He wakes up briefly before getting dosed, which turns out to be very, very important. And then we are whisked away to his dream of Madame Angadine's parties. Now, what they're going to do is they're going to introduce three people who all attended Madame Angadine parties. And Madame Angadine is played by Catherine Kath, who is actually French. Because if she wasn't, this would seem like a hate crime against the French people because she is super <laughs> French. She is exactly what a middle-aged English man would think of what a French society lady is. If this was played by a dude, he would have a beret and carrying a baguette and a stripy shirt because it is just she is just super, super French. But the actress, Catherine Kath, is actually French. She was a prima ballerina in Paris for wow. most of her youth until an injury sidelined her and she turned to acting. Uh... I gotta say, uh, at least in this first outing, our first visit to Madame Angadine's parties, it's really stuffy. It is, oh, it's just like deadly. Everybody's yeah. They they talk about how her wild parties attract all of the I don't know suspected moles in the clandestine service, and they appear to be these affairs where people link arms and then slowly walk in circles around a, a fountain. Yeah, <laughs> and like it's it's the kind of party that jewel thieves go to because that's what everybody's wearing jewels and everybody's kind of uh, trust up. Now, if you were paying attention, Madame Angadine might have been a tip-off here because Angadine is a region in Switzerland, which is famously neutral, you see. So, Ah, um, okay. And what are we to make of the fact that this is the first woman in the series to whom number six has shown any seeming warmth? He's even a little bit flirtatious with her. It's true, it's true. Well, she's mostly flirtatious with him in a kind of over-the-top But But way. he responds. He, he, he responds, doesn't He doesn't right. shut her down immediately the way he did with Nadia in the prior episode or the or the maid who comes to his house. I mean, there's a nice way to decline someone in a nasty way, and elsewhere he always chooses the nasty way. That's true, that's true. And in fact, he will act beastly to women in this episode as well because that's <laughs> kind of his thing. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so uh, Madame Angadine is Frenchier than Didi Khan, and uh, we meet uh, A. A is a man played by the aforementioned Peter Bowles mm-hmm. uh, with a curly-ass mustache so that we can't call him A at this point, Chris. We must call him the guy in the Pringles jar because, like, that's that's <laughs> that's who he is. There's a, there is a fey quality to him, and apparently... 
Pringles guy, has defected to the other side. And that's why uh, when he meets number six, there's a frostiness between them that uh, it seems like A really wants to defrost if he can. We find out that this party is taking place within hours after number six has resigned in this dream multiverse universe that we're now experiencing. Yep, yep, yep. And that word of his resignation has traveled very, very fast. Um, if you think about it, this is number six just kind of reinforcing his own importance, right? This is like, everybody knows that I resigned because I'm such an important special person. He wrote personal on the envelope, Glenn. He did. And yet everybody in this goddamn room seems to, to know... Yeah, you know the the gist, but not the not the details, not the the nitty gritty, which it, of course is the the MacGuffin on which the the whole series hangs. Absolutely. Uh, so anyway, yeah. So the dad and Mary Poppins uh, is, is is so George Banks is acting very cagey, um, and we learn that Six refused to sell out to him. Uh, Six gets kidnapped and is taken to a fancy schmancy estate where there is. Chris, talk to me about this fist fight, please. Talk to me about this fight scene that happens at half speed. Yeah, I was going to bring this up because you you told me that uh, Patrick McGowan was a, a boxer in his youth. And I can only compare his style of punching to his style of speaking. There's sort of a, a weird pause at the end of a punch. I mean, Absolutely. one thing I'm always telling people is you, you want to bring your fist back to your defensive position as quickly as you, you put it out there. Like the recoil is, is very important. You want to minimize the amount of time you are exposed to being hit yourself. And he winds up and lets fly and then just kind of holds with his, his arm extended. And I don't know if the thinking is that it makes it easier for the camera to read or it mm. looks more dramatic or something, but it's it's goofy. It is It is just like hitting that that last syllable of each word with 10 times the force he brought to every prior syllable. Yeah, it just takes forever, that scene. People fly over a car, which it sounds dramatic when I describe it like that, but oh boy, it's... Uh, it's... Yeah, and then when he's done with the fight, he straightens his, his bow tie, which is a very Bond kind of thing. It's true, it's true. And then he walks away. They have just driven him a long time to this estate, and he's just going to, what, walk home? Is that... But then, of course, it's a dream, and he wakes up, and so... Number two is uh, chastened a bit because he knows that it wasn't A, didn't sell out the Pringles guy, and we are told, we are informed that Six needs... That's, so we're just going to skip right... You you have nothing more to say about the gay subtext of the, the scene between I, number six and, and A, where they're yes. whispering to each other and... I mean, I think I, this could only be played this way because in the 60s, you know, even like acknowledgement or discussion of gay life would be just so verboten that they could do this. Whereas, like, say, by the 80s, this scene would be played in a different way. Right. Right? And then I think in a show now, or at any point during the last 20 years, this would clearly be understood by the audience as a, a flirtatious conversation between two guys who, who might be attracted to one another. Um, I th certainly think it's unidirectional because, again, uh, six is about as ace as they come. But... Um, I'm glad you said that because I am always worried that I am number two, trying to fit my hypothesis, trying to trying to make all the facts fit my hypothesis. So, yeah, uh, there is something certainly fay about that uh, about Peter Bowles' performance, and it's not just the mustache, although it certainly is. Um, but yeah, yeah. He I, says you never could take a hint. I don't want a hint. I want you. He does say, "I want you." Yes, yes. I'm glad. I, I'm I'm so glad that it's it's there, and I, I wasn't imagining it because it is. It's certainly, it's it's certainly uh, communicated. But again, it's like he's talking to a wall, right? Like he is not <laughs> getting true, anything. Yeah. There is no heat generated between these two because he's just 
He's just living in a powder gag and giving off sparks, and nothing else I is talk happening. Talk to Nadia, pal. You, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> yeah, true. You can commiserate. You, you, you're barking up a tree that's actually uh, a, a post. But this actor, you know, is capable of generating sparks with Felicity Kendall, which some would say that is a, that is a tough thing to do. So, yes, I, I agree. I agree with you. So, um, he didn't sell out to A. Uh, we learned that Six needs to rest for 24 hours because this dose dream simulation matrix thing is really, really toxic and really, really powerful. When number two learns that, that he has to wait 24 hours until the next night, he eyes the red phone to number one nervously. Mm-hmm. I think the most used stage direction in this entire screenplay is parentheses number two frets close parentheses because that's <laughs> yes. that's all he's doing that's all he's doing uh so the next morning six spots 14 out and about not really out and about because she's literally outside his door buying flowers from our friend the mini moke lady played by uh, lucille sung who was on fresh off the boat uh, like she? just until last year for five seasons, according what? to IMDb, she is in 116 episodes of Fresh Off the Boat. So, it, uh, yeah, she had a long career. She like worked a lot after this and around this time, vanishes for most of the 70s and 80s and then is working steadily um, from the mid 90s until whenever Fresh Off the Boat ended, which I think was just just last year. Yeah, so you know, awesome. good for her. Yeah, good yeah. for her. Anyway, and, and again, you know, she's not given much to do except sell some flowers, but. You have to admire her side hustle, right? I mean, like, she's getting those work units however she can. She's <laughs> driving a mini moak. She's selling Keep, flowers. Keeping herself in non-alcoholic uh, whiskey and, and vodka. Yes. Yeah. Six recognizes number 14, goes over to her while she's sitting there reading the paper. I can't imagine what's in that paper. Can you imagine what? what, what <laughs> it's the, the tally-ho. Yeah. Yes. He, he, uh, he points out that last week, number 14 was an old man in a wheelchair. Not a wheel vanity, not a wheel table, not a wheel sectional. A wheelchair. A wheelchair. And then he says, like, he introduces himself with a line reading that, on paper, seems like a come on. Like, how do you introduce yourself to a woman you've only met in your dreams? <laughs> <laughs> but is delivered in his creepy android way that sounds really threatening. Like, if I would run from a person who said that, he doesn't give off the sexy. He just doesn't. It's not his thing. He then goes to see number two, and there is some cat and mouse shenanigans going on there involving milk, <laughs> pouring of milk, and uh, he notices that he has a, a, well, I mean, it's supposed to be like an injection scar, but it's basically a dot of red yes. makeup on his wrist. In the way that a determined seducer might unbutton a top button or something, he adjusts his collar just so to make sure that his fresh needle mark on his wrist is is clearly visible, apparently anticipating that number two is going to invite him to pour him some milk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, like... <laughs> because uh, he has established himself up to this point as a fully compliant uh, guy, so of course and he, like, will, why, he will do what he's asked. Why can't he pour his own damn milk? Well, I'll tell you why, because he's sitting in that chair. That chair yep. is not easy to get in and out of, and <laughs> that's why they have this umbrella, right, to push buttons right. that are so far yep. away. This is ergonomically a nightmare. He may sleep in the chair because, I mean, he pops up in the chair in, in his uh, nightshirt with his hair disheveled, which I, I assume on an English person means that they're, they've been sleeping or trying to, to mm-hmm. sleep because uh, two of their hairs are, are askew. Yep. So I, I read that as he, he sleeps in the chair. Yep. As soon as number six leaves him, number two gets a call from number one, which suggests that there is some monitoring going on of number two, just as there is monitoring going on everywhere. Well, almost everywhere in the village. We'll get to that. And then, uh, so the next night, I, I admire the economy of this editing where we just cut to Angadine's party. We don't 
faff around with all this fetishist nope. balderall with the wires and the radio shack we just cut back to <laughs> angadine's party uh we know that b is a woman and yes. uh we also know that when they enter her into the sim by putting her eight-track cassette basically yeah. into the <laughs> I, into I think the it's, a, it's a 16 millimeter reel glenn come yeah, on yeah it's come a reel on. okay so it's a reel you can't invade someone's psyche with an eight-track cassette. <laughs> well, Everyone I, knows that. I would beg to differ that Donna Summer invaded my youthful psyche with uh, an eight-track, because I am Fair. 112 years old. She doesn't show up at first because, we learn, he is resisting. He's going to burn through the drug because he is resisting so much. So yep. uh, Madame Ungadine flirts with him because she's French and that's the law. Uh, and then he gets a note to meet B in the arbor, which for a second I thought was just the French way of saying harbor, and I thought like, like meet me by the buoy. I am I am floating on yep. the buoy. Quel scandale! No, uh, meet me in the arbor, which we would call a hedge maze, right? That's basically what it is, right? Yep. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. So he goes into the hedge maze and sitting at the little really rickety little table there having some champagne i just need to note that i mean it is at this point during his, his uh, surveillance of number six's dream that number two says something no one else has ever said um that number six is far too relaxed yeah he's far too relaxed <laughs> yep Not he's his just, thing. just too chill he's, he's, he's... The, the way he whips out that letter opener <laughs> when the butler no no around? the maid brings him in a, yes he is carrying a letter opener which if you're a spy or an ex-spy definitely any common object that that can potentially be an edged weapon yeah of course you just like instinctively you want to tuck those into your pocket whenever the opportunity presents itself but uh it when, just when the, like we the don't see brings him out. the note yeah. and he just shreds through that thing mm -hmm. with his quick draw letter opener so he goes out to meet this incredibly stylish woman uh, sitting at this table who has kind of a carol burnett vibe facially yeah. she is what what we used to call a handsome woman um, and her name is annette carol her name is Annette Carroll, maybe. Who knows? She's wearing this incredible purple paisley dress that looks like uh, Peter Max exploded all over it. They chat. They dance. Uh, and Wait, he... do, do you remember her line? I don't. Go ahead. Okay, it's a little more obtuse than uh, I want you, mm -hmm. but she's not quite as direct as A. Mm -hmm. This is a, a fine bit of writing, I think. She says, let's get distressed together. Oh, I like that. I, just... I think. I think. Okay. I didn't put the subtitles on. I think that's what she said. Okay. That's a pickup line you might you might use. Right? Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's and, and probably delivered with something besides menace. <laughs> 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 Which is good when it can happen on this show. The way they dance together is very like he's barely holding her hand. He's just got a kind of his middle finger touching her hand as they dance. It does not yes, seem it's uh it's the pence. It's the... he's leaving room for the Holy Spirit yeah. between them. Six is resisting, two is getting impatient, so they decide that they're going to put words into B's mouth, and they ask him why he resigned. Again, that is a weird kind of abstract thing to build a show around, but this is the show that they built around it, so here we are. And he sees through it. There is another fighty fight that's, you know, he prided himself on the, f the fact that this show isn't violent. And I would, I would argue, even after seeing two fistfights, this show isn't violent yeah. because... No, there, there, there is an incredibly perfunctory quality to, to these totally. fights. Totally. Though they've got to gotta check off that box, so, okay. Yep. And then uh, Omar Sharif puts a gun to B's head, <laughs> uh, and Six isn't buying it, and quizzes her. And when he asks her questions like, uh, when did your husband die? Uh, how old is your son? What's the name of your son? They have to scramble through B's files to find the right answers. Yeah. 
And I thought for a second there, the rules were getting fuzzy because wouldn't the simulation be know this? Because, because exactly, right, he knows this, right? It's in his subconscious, it's in his conscious. So presumably his subconscious can, can access it. I, I thought this was But then cheating. think about this, think about this, because like if they didn't put this information into the simulation, it's not there, right? But then why would they have a file with this information if it wasn't there, you know what I mean? Like it's it, it's a, it gets a little fuzzy. Yeah. Um. So yes, he walks away. No, it, it, Inception did a better job of explaining the rules of, of how this this all works. And it, and it just took twenty eight minutes to do so. So yeah, that's great. <laughs> it's 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 perfect. <laughs> all right. So the next morning, he's got two dots of red makeup on his wrist, uh, and he tails fourteen to a secret entrance to her place of work. Uh, a a metal door on the side of a mountain. Or yes, side of a hill. made made much easier by the the fact that she is you know wearing her village issue florid like red and orange cape, which makes it makes it very easy to follow her through uh, the woods, right. <laughs> the MGM Bornham Wood woods. We actually get some number six POV shots of him peering through branches and things, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah. And interestingly done, because, like, he sees her, he ducks behind the bushes, he comes up, and she's gone. That's nice. That's a nice little touch there. I know that they spent, like, a month or two just filming in the village, and then everything else was done back in London. Yeah. So this shot, there, there are several shots of her walking through the village, right? So they must have had it planned out to, to that degree, mm. where they have somebody who is blonde and, and number six tailing her. Um, <laughs> yeah. He finds, and this just seems... <laughs> Wait. Are you just skipping right through the the air shaft walk? No, line? I'm getting we to it. This is the thing okay. Okay. where the entire implicit looming threat of the village gets kind of undercut here by the fact that he finds an exhaust duct. He climbs inside it, come out to the coast, have a few laughs, and then <laughs> and then and then he is there in the operating theater, just fooling around. Like this is something. <laughs> That the village Unobserved, was built. unattended, unsecured. This yeah. was the village was built to keep exactly this from happening, given his a his importance that we keep hearing about, and two the fact that this village is about twenty four hour surveillance, and he gets away with a whole lot here. Yeah, even my my unyielding love of Alien and, and Die Hard, and so I mean you you know I I love an air shaft uh, constitutional <laughs> yeah. more than more than most. Uh-huh. Um, and and especially the way this one even honors the trope of the the grill placed over an air shaft can be easily dislodged just, with a with a swift kick, no, no screws. screws, no or, screws. Or, I mean, I'm sure that's in McGowan's contract, right? No, no screwing. screwing ever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No screwing ever. Right. Sure. I appreciate that number six has a has a fine sheen of perspiration on his forehead after mm, that's this. True. Uh, that's true. Again, uh, part of my love of uh, Alien and Die Hard is uh, I appreciate perspiration in a movie more than more than most. Because you're a sweaty man, and you like to see yourself represented on screen. Sweaty man, sweaty jokes. I, I do feel very seen. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this totally unattended, uh, unguarded secret lab where they, they leave the syringes lying around. Like, they don't even clean up from the prior night's experiments. True. <laughs> uh, he figures out exactly what they're up to. I mean, that's the thing. Like, he, like, there's no paperwork here because it's, you know, the future or whatever. It's the village. But like, he figures out exactly what they're up to. He watches, you know, Madame Ungadine's party. And he replaces the drug that he's about to get that night with some water uh, from what I have to say is a very cool decanter that I kind of really like. He waters down the drug considerably. He doesn't replace it completely because he needs, I guess, to still have some psychoactive whatever. Then he leaves completely unaccosted, completely unobserved. We find out later it's because 
apparently only number two is the one who's obsessed with him, and number two had a bad night, so he slept late, so he wasn't <laughs> looking looking for number two, number six at that particular moment. Okay, so yeah, what about the two guys on the seesaw, like periscope thing? Exactly. Like, what are, what are they doing? <laughs> Given how often we're told that this guy's important, it just seems completely weird. All right, anyway, so. That night, number six pours out what turns out to be some very milky tea. Did you see that? It's basically like cocoa. It's crazy. And how do, how do you how do you feel about milky tea, Glenn? I'm. It's not my thing. I understand that uh, there's an entire you know continent that loves it, but like it's not. Uh-huh. That's not for me. Uh-huh. And how do you prefer your tea? Uh, just uh, black with lemon, as a matter of fact. Yeah. I'm sorry, with with what? Lemon. Lemon. I'm sorry, with lemon. Okay, thank you. I thank knew, you. I, I couldn't figure out what you were going for <laughs> until it was entirely too late. <laughs> Uh, he drinks some water smugly, <laughs> which is such a, <laughs> this is such a weird show because the expression on his face as he's drinking his water is uh, priceless. But they have outfoxed him because they drunk they drugged his water, of course. That shot when where he he fills the glass with water from the faucet and holds it up to his face, and we see his eyeball distorted through the prism mm-hmm. of the of the water in the glass. I love that because that is kind of how Patrick McGowan's face looks to me. Most of the time, as I said, because of his weird, like his refusal to open his eyes to the same degree at the same time. Right. Uh, he, he always looks like you're looking at him at some extreme angle, even when you're looking at him straight true. I love that shot. It's a great shot. Uh, he collapses. And now we're back. And we, we find out that number two and number 14 do not know who C is. All they know is that he is French. Yeah, I mean, there are so many conditions imposed on this. Like, we know it's one of these three people, except we only know two of the three people. Yep. But we all know that all of these three people, even the one we don't know, all went to Madame Ungadine's walking in circles around a fountain party. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this version of the party is much better. The music is so much better. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems to be like Magoon's, uh vision of... Drug land. So why, darling? It will end in tears. All the best parties do. Oh, it's terrible! <laughs> Turn it up! It's creamy! This is a dreamy party! Right, and then he straightens the mirror, which causes the 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 scene itself to straighten. I thought that was kind yeah, of a that's, cool touch. That's awesome. It's a no, nice that's, touch. that's great. It's a nice touch. No. Uh, however, the people at this party, like, this is the thing I was thinking about today, Chris, like, Television used to be filled with middle-aged people. That's not the case anymore. It's nothing but, but you know, 3% body fat, 20-year-olds and teens. But yeah, yeah. I know I'm, I'm interrupting a, a larger point you're making here, but I keep thinking over and over as I'm watching this, I, I don't think I would like this show now. Yeah. Like, I think so much of what I love about it is just the very dated aesthetic of the production design of the clothes of the of the language of uh, the more presentational style of acting if you took this premise i you know and like you got uh, i don't know jonah nolan <laughs> to do the hbo version of this it's like i'd probably hate it yeah or you know a, a showtime version with eric banna and uh sir ian mckellen like that like that would suck probably uh J- jim caviezel jim caviezel sorry and i think it was amc but uh well uh yeah all right so i can take that again or like an amc version with jim nope, caviezel we're, we're leaving it we're leaving okay. it in baby all right all right I, I i sound so much less smart than i than i <laughs> than i'm not uh, anyway a few years back chris faust asked for a um a DVD set, remember those, of uh, Dynasty for some reason? And I got it for him for his birthday. We started watching it. And at one point, Crystal has an affair with her chauffeur because he's so fucking hot, right? 
and this dude is 40 if he's a day. Now, wearing a three-piece suit, as everybody did back then, makes everybody look older, but, like, it was just, when they kissed, you just got that face smush of just skin, of just, like, like when Roger Moore, Latter-day yes. Roger Moore would kiss somebody. And it... He described that style of kissing in one of his several memoirs as a uh, passion without pressure. <laughs> God. <laughs> that sounds gross. Okay, so. Yep. This version of the party is much trippier. This is a dreamy party. <laughs> At that point, Madame Angadine introduces him to a woman who is played by Georgina Cookson, who we will see again in an episode mm. coming up. She gives him her earring, play on number six at the roulette wheel, a very Elizabeth Taylor, these have always brought me luck kind of moment. <laughs> he wins and is given an old-timey key. A, a key the size of a wrench. Exactly. We get from this somehow that it turns out she is Madame Angadine all along. Um, ah. But he's he's apparently going to defect to the other side, and if he goes over, he, it means he can never come back. He has with him some papers from London uh, that he's brought with him. And then they uh, put their two keys. Is this a thing that is real, like two keys into a door? Or is that a thing that the show made up? Because that, that would seem... That seems like how you launch the <laughs> nuclear missiles on a submarine. It's true. Simultaneously turn and... Yeah. Yep. So they go through the door, but then the image on the screen vanishes because uh, we find out he's collapsed, the word that number 14 uses, which technically I don't think you can collapse if you're already lying down, but that's you know maybe mental collapse, I suppose, is what mm. she's talking about. And uh, 2 is insistent he wants to go back into the dream, even though it could kill him. This, uh, we cut back, and now Madame Angadine is driving number six down a rear screen projection of the Champs-Élysées because <laughs> yep. everything about her is Frenchy, Frenchy, French. Yep. French yep. On the and nose. then after that, when we get the, the side view of the car, they're driving by an, an Air France yep. office. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> so they're really underlining. <laughs> they are, they are. <laughs> yes. And then Pepe Le Pew kind of skirts, skirts around them and <laughs> yep. beat under the Eiffel Tower. Uh, so they are meeting with another person at, at what Madame Angadine calls the summit. Uh, this gets too very excited because he didn't know there was another person that Madame Angadine worked for. And then uh, number 14, in a great delivery, says, we have to call him D. And then I don't know if this is where, like, the dream logic is supposed to be breaking down, but they pull up to an estate, he goes through a door, and then he's on a kind of back lot. He's kind of on a yeah. French back lot. Says, See, and I, I love this. This seems more dreamlike to me than Madame Ungadine's party did, even with the canted camera angles. Right, right, right. I agree. I agree. It is cool that there are, you know, there's lights on in every window, but uh, nobody is, he's just there alone saying, I want to yeah. see you. I've been dying to see you. And then D shows up in kind of a gentleman thief get up i'm not a, exactly sure what's going on Zorro, here. Uh, yeah. yeah it's he's wearing a tuxedo but also a red lined cape with uh black gloves and black hosiery over his face yep hat um big old hat too glenn it is not colin gordon's voice no it's not in this scene even though i'm uh, like skipping ahead to the the big reveal here of uh whose face we will see when number six rips the stocking off of his head no one will ever see me I will. Did you recognize this voice of this this masked man? Oh, I'm so glad you you know this because I know I've heard it before. Is it the guy who plays number two when it's not? We're getting like the fakey number two, like we're getting a misdirect in the opening. I I don't have an answer to that, but that is that is very plausible. His name is Robert Rietti. Okay. 
He was ubiquitous in British television at this time. He goes on to become an ADR, like, looping director for lots of big movies, um, including Lawrence of Arabia, among any others. This is after working in radio for, for many years with his, his buddy Orson Welles on, on shows that I particularly love, like The Lives of Harry Lyme and The, and the Black Museum. Movies he appeared in on screen as a face actor, <laughs> face actor. <laughs> have, have some some very intriguing titles girls will be boys mm-hmm. bluebeard's 10 honeymoons and the truth about women okay sounds like sure. the kind of film patrick Baguin would, would really <laughs> enjoy he is still working as of uh, hannibal that would be the bad ridley scott sequel to oh, the yeah. silence of the lambs uh like 35 years after this I recognized him as the actor who dubbed Adolfo Celli as Largo in Thunderball. And, of course, he shows up in lots of other Bond films hmm. vocally. But, Glenn, I, I have to feel that the apex of his career came in 1981 mm-hmm. when he supplied the pleading voice of a man in a wheelchair and a neck brace <laughs> who was being pursued and menaced by a helicopter ostensibly oh piloted God. by one Roger Moore. Uh, how does that keep coming up on this show? That is so weird. <laughs> as a character who, for legal reasons, cannot be identified as Ernst Stavro Blofeld. We can do a deal. We can do a deal! I buy you a delicatessen in stainless steel! He offers him some kind of deal, the particulars of which I'm, I'm sure you, you will recall. Delicatessen, yes. Here he only says a violence will do no good. Uh, at which point, Patrick McGowan, yeah. number six, says, it relieves the feelings, which is a <laughs> weird thing to say. It is yep. not untrue, but it relieves the feelings is just such a weird way to say it. Yeah, that that sounds like that's, that's right out of... Uh, Catholic school boys uh, <laughs> code of conduct. <laughs> Keep your hands above your bed sheets at all uh-huh. times. Uh, the, uh, it relieves. Anyway, uh, so mm-hmm. we get a nice set piece here where Six on screen unmasks the uh, the dude who we can see his glasses. We can see his glasses underneath <laughs> the mask, uh, which is a black stocking, as you say, and then turns and faces the, the camera, even though there's theoretically not one, and it turns out to be number two. And then... This show, which goes out of its way to kind of make number six seem like a special superhuman, special snowflake, underlines itself again where number two says, your drug failed. And number 14 says, no, he succeeded. Which, okay, simmer down, lady. We get it. We get it. He's good. He's, he's, he's really Yeah. Good. No, his, uh, his lucid dreaming game mm-hmm. is unstoppable. And then uh, on screen, and I really like this moment. I think this is one of the smarter moments of this particular episode where... On screen, number six enters the operating theater. They keep looking at the door to make sure he's not actually doing that. Right. Uh, he gives them a packet of information, which turns out to be travel brochures to various Mediterranean locations, the Amalfi Coast, Greece, Italy. And then, Chris, what do you think of this? He then turns to them on screen and says, I wasn't selling out. That wasn't the reason I resigned. Which is giving them something, right? That's giving them a very important piece of information that we've been told if he breaks, if he bends even a little, everything else will flow from it. Yeah. This is, why would he give that up? Yeah. You, you've pointed out how this is such an abstract question to hang the entire series. You know, it's not like who killed Laura Palmer or right. something, right? We have established how incredibly self-righteous this guy is. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't you feel like he would be screaming his reasons for resigning from the goddamn rooftops? Don't you feel like he, he would be publishing this and, and broadcasting this through every outlet available to him? 
I also don't understand if the, the like the premise of this episode is they they suspect him of selling out, of being a mole, of becoming a double agent. If you were going to do that, you wouldn't resign. Exactly. I mean, you would keep your access to the secret information that you are going to use as your bartering chip, your source of income now. You wouldn't quit. That right. doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. And also, we learned last episode that he resigned for a matter of conscience because for a very long time, dot, 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 dot. <laughs> All right, so... Yeah. We kind of get it, right? We kind of know yeah, he resigned. Yeah. We can we can read context clues. It's amazing to me that the managers of the village are like, no, uh, we need, could you could you run that again, please? I just need more. <laughs> Say it again into your lamp <laughs> in your house. <laughs> so we, uh, we get it. We get it fully. This is his first real victory in the village, and it's also the first episode where escape is not his goal. Uh, maintaining his own kind of personal selfhood is his goal that he right. manages to accomplish. This is a pretty straight-ahead episode in terms of um, if you were watching this in 1967, you would not have no clue that if things were about to get really abstract and abstruse. This is still... Right. He's try- they're trying to get information out of him. But on a symbolic level, it's one of the things that the show's about, which is maintaining selfhood in the face of uh, pressure from society, capital S. And here we are starting to get a hint of something more symbolic going on. Yeah. So in this this uh, final act here, where he manifests the ability to dream so lucidly that he can, while still lying unconscious on the table, march back into the laboratory and present his captors with an envelope full of, of travel brochures. I mean, he is basically Neo at the end of the Matrix at yep. this point, right? He has, yep. he has so mastered the, the environment. Is that because he still had some of Number 14's Wonder Drug in him? Or is it just that his willpower is so indomitable that uh, he can he can just do that now? In which case, why wouldn't he just stay asleep for the rest of his life? <laughs> he seems to have everything he wants. Yeah, there, that's right? true. They no, cannot confine him. I mean, I, for the longest time, whenever I thought about this episode, I thought mm-hmm. he had completely switched out the drug. Um, he just filled it with water. But he didn't. He left a certain trace amount to allow some of it to influence him. He just overcame it, not because he is superhuman, but because he's smart. And he diluted the drug in a very intentional way, which I like. I I, I like that aspect of it because that means he's less of a um, Superman and more of a Batman. So what you're saying is that... We don't know number six's name, but we know that his parents' name were Thomas and Martha, uh-huh. and they were murdered by Joe Chill in Crime Alley <laughs> following a screening of the, the Mark of Zorro, the Mask, Mask of Zorro. Mask of Zorro. Because Joe Chill wanted Martha's pearls, and after that horrible night, little number six took a vow because it was Joe Chill who took his mother's life. He would never, ever, ever be chill. I knew it was coming, but I, I, I wasn't prepared for it. Somehow, I knew it was coming, and when it arrived, my uh, stomach lining just wasn't, wasn't ready. <laughs> like John Hurt, your stomach lining could never be ready. Okay. All right. It's All right. just the three references with you. It's just the three. How dare you? Uh. <laughs> he, again, looks right at the dream cam. Mm-hmm. Always knows where it is, and uh, says, be seeing you. Yep, and then um, something really interesting in the sound design happens because they're, the sound of the uh, alpha waves, or whatever the hell they are, the sound of his biorhythm going on the oscilloscope, uh, is kind of... And then when the red phone rings from number one, it also has that same... That same vibrato. Uh, uh. Just to be 
disconcerting, I suppose. And then slam face. <laughs> slam face. Slam face at the end, which is never not funny to me because it just comes so comes so suddenly. And it's so. Yeah. Yeah. Beginning and ending with, I think, the same shot, right? Isn't it that same low angle of a worried number two with that enormous and seductively curved red phone in the foreground. <laughs> yep. That's also yep. the the last thing we see before the, the face slam, right? Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. We're two frets. But this number two will be back. He'll still Which be drinking I, his milk. like that makes the village less scary. He seems like he should be dead, right? The other number twos, none of them have... We, we haven't been shown any indication mm-hmm. that they're under the kind of pressure that, that this one is. Mm-hmm. He is clearly, as you've said, willing to risk number six's life to get results, suggesting he thinks his own life is in jeopardy. He says, I know I'm not indispensable uh, early in the episode, seeming to repeat something that the unheard voice on the other end of the phone, but presumably number one, has said to him. Um, bringing this guy back does not make any goddamn sense. It's, it's like if uh, in The Force Awakens you see... Uh, Admiral, the guy who gets strangled yeah, <laughs> by yeah, Darth yeah. Vader in the Star Destroyer. Right. It's like, ah, failing upwards. They, they moved <laughs> me into uh, personnel. I've been doing great. I, I needed a break from the pressure. Yeah, I think I think that might be. That might also works symbolically is that, yes, <laughs> middle-aged white men, <laughs> you, you can't get rid of them. Now, uh, next week's episode, Free For All, is one where a lot of the symbolic shit that sh- the show is really about kind of bubbles up to the surface in a big old way. I, I really like this episode. Number six takes on low information voters. <laughs> <laughs> and has a lot of scenes which I think of as, as quintessential to the series. Like absolutely, absolutely part of what this show is about. This one, ABC, I, I liked it a lot. I liked it more actually seeing it now than I had before. Maybe because we were getting a glimpse of um, the behind the scenes of, of the religion way that I kind of really like to see. Uh, maybe because number six wins. I like seeing number six have a little triumph, mm. a little petty little triumphs. This is not one of the core seven, I think, that, that McGowan has reportedly, although that's been disputed, said that we're the ones that really matter, yeah. are essential. But it does its job, right? I mean, it, it, it does reinforce to us that number six is a special snowflake and that he can't be treated the same way that we treat other people. Otherwise, this whole series doesn't make any sense, right? Like, why don't they just, like, yeah. extract the information? Because and we've established that they can both uh, observe one's dreams mm-hmm. through sound and picture yeah. and <laughs> uh, try to influence what they're able to extract from them through the controlled administration of this drug. Mm-hmm. So the fact that this has apparently never before been tried, except on number six, I mean, that, that makes him the most important person in the world. Yeah. Right? Yeah. These are both potentially world-altering inventions that are just table-setting here. I don't think we, we hear of their use again or see their, their use again. I mean, these, these would seem to be more critical to the fabric of this show than the transporter or warp drive was to Star mm-hmm. Trek, right? Yep. Or at least on that level. And I, I don't think they come back. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they do. But. Well, when this number two comes back, he will mm-hmm. also be using a incredible theoretical technology speed learn uh to do what nothing to do nothing to, it's just it's not clear what the goal is so this episode of a degree absolute is brought to you by speed learn by the way yeah use yeah. uh use promo code resigned <laughs> that's nice the idea here is that technology can get crazy right technology we can we can invade people's dreams but still ethically we're still 
lowly human beings who will use this amazing technology to do some pretty petty ass shit. <laughs> that that I believe, that tracks. Mm. I don't even know if uh, like I should save this for for uh, another episode, maybe. But uh, did did you know that there was like in the last five years a new audio drama series produced of The Prisoner, taking the familiar episodes and sort of combining them, representing them. I listened to two of them on my bike ride the other day. Mm-hmm. Found them quite enjoyable. Really? What's yeah, it called? Yeah, it's called The Prisoner. It's from an outfit called um, Big Finish mm. <laughs> Productions. Mm-hmm. They've done audio plays based in lots of popular British genre stuff, predominantly Doctor Who. They've, they've done oh, sure. uh, some Avengers series. And I think the the prisoner they did three series of four episodes that that run around an, an hour apiece. They're more serialized, but they're they're fun. I've kind of been been digging it. And the the guy who plays number six is uh, Mark Elstob, who's not someone I know. Mm-hmm. He's no Pat McGowan because who who could be? Mm. But he is particularly good at saying what. <laughs> Cool. Which he which he says he says a lot. You you come to really look forward to. Uh, I mean, in the space of just just two hours spent with this guy, I, I find myself fairly vibrating in anticipation of the next. What? <laughs> uh, I will uh, I will certainly check it out. I can send him to you. So the next episode we're talking about, Free for All, was written and directed by Patrick McGowan, and it's. Perhaps his favorite, uh, or at least uh, so he has been quoted as saying, it is also a favorite of many, many fans. Not necessarily me. I have a, I have a different favorite. But how about you? No, I, I do love this one. It's one of the ones that I remember clearly. Um, I know he is the credited director, but I'm sure for some kind of guild reasons or, or some such, he uh, had to use a pseudonym right. on the, the writing credit, which was was what? It was like Patty Stitch or Patty Fitch or something like that? Uh, I have here Patrick McGowan, but we have to, huh. we have to see it. Okay. The credit on screen is uh, is something different, but it's a it's a silly name. Like, it is uh, something that fairly calls itself out as a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. Well, till then, Glenn, be seeing you. Be seeing you. That's a thing, right? <laughs> That's an ending. Give my regards to the homeland. Slam! <laughs> <laughs> A Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klimek. You can email the Citizens Advice Bureau at adegreeabsolute at gmail.com. You can tweet us at notanumberpod. Glenn and I sincerely thank you for listening. Even though we started this show during a global pandemic, we have grand ambitions for where it could go including one day maybe even i don't know traveling live shows come out to the coast we'll get together have a few laughs, <laughs>, <laughs>